2: I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community, and community is what we crave. Today we talk with Cheryl Kaiser, a longtime friend and the visionary behind Babson College's Lewis Institute for Social Innovation. That's a big deal. In case you didn't know, Babson is the number one business school in entrepreneurship in the world, and it has been since the rankings began some 20 plus years ago. Cheryl has inspired countless entrepreneurial leaders through her course, from corporate social responsibility to social innovation. She is also a great and committed food activist and lives by the mantra, find a way to say yes. A forever foodie, we are thrilled that Cheryl Kaiser joins our show today. I was born in
3: the 50s and my grandmother was vegan, so think about that. I was raised pretty much like a natural hygienist. My parents ate very clean, very healthy. We were really influenced by my grandmother, who was really influenced because when she came here from Europe, she worked in the meatpacking industry in Manhattan. She was rather overweight. And she was so turned off by meatpacking that she left it, lost a lot of weight, and committed herself as an ideological vegan. She didn't wear leather. She didn't wear any animal products. And not only was she a vegan, she was a raw foodist. She didn't cook her food. That's where it started. So I was raised by a mother and grandmother who valued healthy food who valued clean food, and think about it. The 50s was when we had TV dinners and everything was about convenience. I never had a TV dinner. I never ate out of a can, and I always had fresh food. So I was really privileged. I was really lucky, but it came from a point of view, and the point of view was really not the dominant point of view in the 50s. I would go to schools that had lunches, and it was a typical lunch with meat and potatoes, It always had some kind of meat. I did eat it. I wasn't, I didn't eat vegan. I was raised by a vegan grandmother, but I ate a lot of different things because as a person and a personality, I believed in trying everything. So I wasn't really strict about anything. In our home, salad was the biggest part of our meal, and protein was the smallest part of our meal. But going to other people's homes, I remember my best friend turning me on to Fluff and Nutters. Fluff and Nutters were amazing, and she lived a mile from my house. And I would come home from school and tell my parents, "I'm just going to go visit Nancy and do homework." I'd run to her home, eat a fluff and nutter, and run back because we didn't have that in our home. So I thought it was odd. I actually I can laugh about it, but I kept thinking, "How come this is happening to me?" because I really wanted to be part of the 50s and you know, lots of fast food, candy, couldn't eat candy. I do remember a story when I went to visit my grandmother and all of us went to a five and dime store and got candy and she found it hidden in her house and she pulled all of us in, brought us back to the drugstore that sold it to us and told them that if they ever sold to her grandchildren again, that she would not have her son-in-law, who was a doctor, use that drugstore. So she was really pretty serious about food, and it was a little too much. I can laugh at it now, and I feel privileged that I learned how to eat well, but I also really rebelled against it. I sort of wanted to be like other kids. When I had a birthday party, my grandmother would be in our living room doing yoga and sitting on her head for five minutes. Other grandmothers were baking cookies and brownies and inviting you into the kitchen. So it was different. Oh, my God. And what I didn't say, she was married to a very wealthy, wealthy man who when his grandchildren came, he would bring us to the cafe in Miami Beach Hotel and we'd have cheeseburgers and French fries. He'd buy us toothbrushes to be able to brush our teeth. Because my grandmother, you know, when you're vegan, you can smell everything. And so we'd, we'd walk in and she'd go, what did they just eat? And my grandfather would say, nothing, nothing. I, you, know, they, you know, they gave them whatever. But, you know, we would have had fried food. And, you know, fried food stays on you for, and you're a little kid. I'm telling you, it was not fun back then. My grandmother was a nutcase. But I loved her. She just influenced me so much. Oh, and you know what we used to do for vacations? We used to go fast on water for seven days. She'd bring us to this wonderful place in Palm Beach and we would go and fast. I did it for 21 days once, but you know, when you wanted to be with my grandmother, you'd go to Dr. Esser's ranch and you'd fast on distilled water. She was a lot of fun. (laughs) We did not go to Disney World, let's put it that way. Let's go visit grandma and fast on water, wow! (laughs) I felt different, but then again, My total story is that I grew up with activist parents. My father was an activist. He believed in uh, health promotion, disease prevention, when a lot of people weren't thinking about it. My mother started a natural food store in 1969 and uh, was one of the pioneers in the natural food industry. In Providence, she had, and while she died rather young, right after she started the store, our family kept the store. So we were always been about food and about bringing health to people and communities. I grew up with activist family, so I was used to bucking the status quo, but not being able to eat fluff and nutters was a big deal. But my mother really did want to open a retail store that could really accommodate both macrobiotics back in the 60s, as well as people who were just wanting natural, good food. Her first stores were very typical of that time. We had bulk food, bulk grains, bulk honey, bulk nuts, she slowly grew it to be a pretty significant store to the point where she brought in body care and skin care products and vitamins. And she really grew it to be quite a retail operation. My father's influence was really health policy. My mother died very young. She had never been sick a day in her life, actually. And what was rather sad is she woke up one day and had glioblastoma, and five weeks later was dead of a massive brain tumor. And my father's question, if lifestyle matters, how could a woman who was so healthy die of something like this. So when she passed away, he set up a foundation, the Ernie Yaffe Foundation for Health Promotion Disease Prevention. From there, built something with Harvard School of Public Health and other schools, the New England Coalition for Health Promotion Disease Prevention, because he was always looking at how can we prevent disease? If we can control the way we eat, control the way we live, We can control healthcare costs and we can control negative outcomes. So he was really influenced by health and eating on the policy end. And my mother was really excited about bringing it to the retail level. She even brought it into prison systems, uh, which was very unusual in that day. She actually worked with the Adult uh, Correctional Institute in Providence and was able to bring natural foods to prisoners.
2: Wow. And now your brother also has a vegan restaurant.
3: Mm-hmm. He has three vegan restaurants and, and a vegan bakery. My grandmother's influence was really strong. So looking back, we went through rebellious periods. We, My brother jokes about running a natural food business and every once in a while just going into his car sort of incognito to a McDonald's just because he really wanted to have a McDonald's. But doesn't negate the fact that health is really important. What we eat is really important. None of the kids in my family were ever very evangelical about being vegan. Vegan. My dominant diet is primarily vegan, but that's because it's what I like to eat. It's more of a belief system now because of the environment. But I also don't believe in making it a big deal. I I love food so much, and I love cooking that when I go to people's homes and they say, "Are there any restrictions?" I actually try not to say there are restrictions because I really love food. I want to try what other people cook and what they're really proud of making. I will eat meat. I think meat's very tasty. It's just not my regular diet. So I respect other people and what they choose and want to cook because I love to cook and I love when people appreciate it. During the pandemic, there were only two places I went. One was to Whole Foods and the other was to Wilson Farm or Valenti Farm because I needed to see color and vegetables. And those are the things that gave me a source of energy during the pandemic was just to look at good food. It's a source of energy for me as well as sustenance.
2: Amazing. Amazing. I've also known you in your great support of food entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy of entrepreneurship and how it it particularly seems to animate people in the food world.
3: Obviously, my point of view around entrepreneurship comes from Babson College and our methodology of entrepreneurial thought and action, which is really, really simple, because we don't believe that entrepreneurship is an outcome. We believe it's a mindset, a way of thinking, a way of identifying opportunities, solving problems. It's not about startups only.
2: That's interesting, because I've had so many conversations with you where you say to me, oh... You're a natural entrepreneur. You're a social entrepreneur. What what I see myself as is somebody who follows the fun. But clearly don't do it for the money. Why do I? I do
3: it? Because it's fun. If you would ask me about entrepreneurship, I will tell you that what I have observed with all good entrepreneurs is there is a lot of joy and a lot of love because you can't do what you're doing if you don't start with a great desire to want to see something happen. So what I've observed in the food space is that people that go into it have a desire that they want to make something, they want to see something happen. And it's really the heart of the creative process. Creativity is so tied to entrepreneurship, because it's a very similar process. You have something that really get excited about, and that's fun. And you just said, you do things because it's fun. I never saw myself as entrepreneurial. I didn't even know how to spell the word till I got to Babson College and then realized it was a whole thing. But my whole life I've been creating stuff. I love starting things. I love changing things. I love that act and that energy to make something happen, get other people along, see something that you're gonna do and take it to its logical end, whether it continues or whether you end it. That is the creative process. Start with desire, find people that you can play with to do it, start to build it, and you know, develop it from there. And we've had the opportunity to meet with so many different food entrepreneurs from chefs to producers to manufacturers to restaurant owners. And there's an important part of who they are and what they love and what they want to see manifested in the world. And good entrepreneurs want to see something manifested that they create with themselves or others. And it's incredibly joyful. I think people love to create. And when they create, it taps into a very different energy than when you're managing something. Creating and managing are two different energy sources. I will also tell you that the food space is a unique space. Over the last 10 years, I've had the great opportunity at Babson to have started a Food Solutions Institute with Rachel Greenberger. What we did was we just put up a shingle and once a week said, come, if you're a food entrepreneur or an eater entrepreneur, it doesn't matter. If you love food, just come. Regardless of whether we had a great chef or whether we had a student from India who wanted to start a spice product, it didn't really matter. It's a very generous environment people in the food space are really very generous people. And so a lot of our students and alumni and outside entrepreneurs who came always got their needs met because they'd come always with an issue or a challenge or just to learn. And everybody sort of riffed off of each other. And that's when I really got to understand the food space really well, is because I got to watch it, how people behaved when they were in community together, trying to talk about what they cared about. Food has so many different impacts in people's lives from nurturing us to how we feel in our heart to how we get to create and give. It's also sad because we're in a world where there are people that don't have food and then there are people that are having too much food. So, Food is a really incredible mobilizer of a lot of different energy, both really positive and sad if it if people can't experience it because it really is so tied to our life force and to our nurturing ourselves and others.
2: If somebody comes to you, they have an idea for some great product. They are either, you know, a Babson graduate student from Nicaragua who wants to make frappuccinos from single source, or they want to make a spice mix, or they have a packaging idea. How do you begin with them? How do you sort of like bring them through the process of thinking through an idea to a product?
3: Well, the first thing I want to do, and I'll spend a lot of time is who are they and what calls them to want to do this. I then want to know, what do you know? Who do you know in this space? What resources do you currently have? Because a good entrepreneur will start with the resources they have at hand. I will stay very much focused on who they are, what they know, who they know and what resources they have right now to take the next step to see if this is still what they want. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs will start and say, oh, I want to do X. And by the time we go through one or two cycles of looking at who they have around them, what resources they have, everything is an iterative process. You're constantly experimenting. We call it act, learn, build. Take an action, learn from that action. What did you learn? And some people will start and say, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't want to do this. It's too much work or I actually don't have the skill in that. And that's really not where I want to spend my time. So it really is a very personal and it's a very internal and it's a very external process. The best thing that I can do is connect them to people who are doing the same thing. And that's what I mean by generosity. I can't tell you how many times I've sent students who want to open a restaurant to people who are potentially their competitors, who give them really fantastic advice. We try to connect them to the networks they need to be in. We connect them to the knowledge they need to know then they have to make their own decisions at that point. When you give them all those resources to take a step each step of the way, that feeds whether they're going to continue it, whether they're going to change it and pivot, or they're not going to do it at all. If you don't start with why, it's very, very hard to convince people why they should buy into what you're doing. If you don't have a compelling why, People aren't going to buy into your restaurant, into your food product. People buy into things today. They don't buy things. And with more of a conscious uh, and really discerning consumer today, purpose really matters. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because it's the why that people are buying into, not the what. There's tons of food out there. The why, the how, and the what. The how and the what can be very, very similar. The why is really the mobilizing Purpose by which people are going to decide to go to your restaurant or buy your product. People are buying into purpose today and they're buying into something much bigger than creating a
2: product or a service. We'll be back with Cheryl Kaiser in a minute and hear more about why she thinks why is the most important question for
1: entrepreneurs. with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back
2: with Cheryl Kaiser. Cheryl, I often hear you talk about the why. What's that about? What's an example of a why for, I want to open a new restaurant. What's a why for that?
3: A great example is my brother. He has three restaurants. Really why he's opened them is his why goes really back to our family values. My mother opened her natural food store to bring health and awareness of health to the Providence community we kept that store for a long, long time till Whole Foods came in and it made sense for us not to compete with Whole Foods. And so he then said, I still want to bring health to the community And let me do it with fast, casual restaurants and a bakery, uh, which wasn't there then. So he had all the business reason. He, you know, as a businessman, he had an opportunity. He had the right market. But the why is why people come to Robbie right now, because he has built a community around health and wellness. And if you go into his stores, that why you see in how he serves you, who serves you, what they serve you, and the ambience by which you're eating there. You can also go over to a food court that doesn't have the same why in the community, but people continue to go to Robbie because it's part of their community. It's been in their family for a long time. He made a very conscious choice to be a member of the community. That's his why. Food is the way he does it. So that's why even with competitors that come into the marketplace, he has a steady stream of customers and loyalists because his why is that we're here for our community. And and he does that in every way. During the pandemic, his decisions were made for the community. And so that's his why. When I think of Nancy Cushman, who talks about the details of her restaurants and what she does, that's a value. When she described to me that she wanted her customer to feel the restaurant from the time they open the door, the latch on the door, the way it's brought through the restrooms, it's a set of qualities and values that are coming out through whatever it is you're creating. Every restaurant has a value it creates by the why they're in business. And it starts to dictate how you're going to execute and deliver on your promise going back to my brother, he promises healthy, good food for everybody. He really also wanted to democratize natural food. He didn't want it just to be for women going to lunch and their children. He was really clear that I want to make food for people who are in the construction trades. I want people who are going to go to Dunkin' Donuts and come over and have lunch. He didn't want to make it precious. He wanted to make it accessible. So that's his why. That and that drives the decisions he makes and the way he interacts with his customers. The same way that Apple has a very different why than Microsoft. You know, when you walk into an Apple store, even though next door might be a Microsoft store, they're selling a lot of the same stuff, but the why is so totally different and you feel it when you walk through the doors. It drives a very different set of values when you have a why that's tied to a purpose. And my why is really different. I am not about content. I am about relationships. So my why drives every action that I take. And if you think of Stephen Jobs, every action he took drove towards his why and his design sense and what he wanted for human beings.
2: You consult and advise all sorts of companies all over the world, on entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. Has all of that changed you?
3: I'm the apple that doesn't fall far from my parents' trees. I have always been somebody who wants to start things, change things, and sometimes, when necessary, break things. The underlying current for me is around responsible business and responsible citizens. I have always been at the intersection of business and society. That's been really important to me because being at an intersection of business and society, I get to be able to help impact better outcomes, better outcomes for society and better outcomes for business. And I've been doing that the bulk of my career. One thing that I love about the entrepreneurial mindset is it's even changed how I think about everything I do. Because I want to impact society, it's not simple. It's not a, it's not a business problem to be solved. It's a bunch of dilemmas to be managed. And so I love managing lots of dilemmas that map up to big stuff because we never solve big stuff. It used to be that I had a way I did things, but I realized that I look at every situation as a new situation, because if I don't do
2: that, I actually leave things on the table. We're coming out of a year of people eating a lot at home and not eating out and sort of rediscovering the joy of their own kitchens. How do you think that will play out in the next couple of years? I've heard a lot of people who were on the go and eating a
3: lot of meals out, they actually love the hunkering down in their home and cooking. Mm-hmm. I've seen people shifting where the the male partner in the house is really experimenting and their creative side is coming out and loving cooking. I think that food and the pandemic has changed our relationship to food and the relationship of the relationships in the household to food. People are excited to go out. I went out for the first time in 14 months to a restaurant. For somebody that travels and ate out a lot, I went to two restaurants. It was really lovely, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all because we have loved trying so many different flavors and tastes, and I love cooking. What I loved about the restaurant is what I can't get at home, and that is I could sit and have a glass of wine and not worry if I'm going to burn something. So for me, the restaurant is now the place to go where I can just sit and talk and, and be served. I'm not looking for the best food on the planet because I think a lot of us have created some of the best food on the planet by being at home. I think that restaurants have a high bar to live up to because we've all had really amazing food and cooked it the way that we want because we've had a year to do it. I think our expectations are different, but it's a really exciting time for the restaurant industry, just like every other industry, to reimagine what is their purpose and what are they really doing. What is their and why? It's, <laughs> what is their why? And it is about food, but it is so much more now. What I look for is the ambiance. I'll be really honest. There were some really wonderful restaurants we went to that were very hard to get into and very precious. I'm looking for a relationship. And I think that what we understand is that the restaurant industry is some of the greatest relationships we have in communities. And I think we're going to look to our restaurants as really wonderful places for community, as well as food. I don't look at food first. I look at the community, how I feel, and the food, the gestalt of it, not just one or the other. What I'm curious about how these wonderful chefs and restaurant owners believe they need to change in order to emerge back into the world, and are they changing, or do they think they need to change? I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of different paths forward, but I definitely think it's going to change the mindset of some of the top chefs who had a point of view and a perspective and a way they lived in the world. If COVID has taught all of us anything, it's that We're not in a new normal, we're in a dynamic normal. And the more dynamic you are and the more uh, entrepreneurial you are to be able to respond to the needs of your customers and where the world is moving, you're going to win. So you can't hold on to the good old days because there are no good old days, but there's a dynamic new and the dynamic new is gonna change for a long, long time. It's really hard when you're fearful and when you're broke and when you've got a lot of debt And that's also the best time to have an entrepreneurial mindset. You've got to actually get somewhat optimistic in order to pull yourself to a place that you can see possibilities.
2: I think that's great. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you, Cheryl. That was great. And listeners, stay tuned. We'll have more from Cheryl Kaiser on the show in the near future. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org, or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory. A cross sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hunger Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community?